Hello and welcome to episode 328 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast, sponsored by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carcino. And we are coming to you in different locations today. I'm in Seattle, Washington, home of the four-time champion, Storm. And I'm I'm coming to you from Renton, Washington, home of the Super Bowl 48 champion, Seattle Seahawks. It's still the home of Sue Bird, but not Sue Bird the basketball player for the very first time since we've recorded the Pelton cast. And obviously way many years before that. <laughs> so... Uh, naturally, as I was in Beer Star this week picking out a beer to drink, I told you we need something bird themed. So I went with the Black Raven Flocktoberfest Lager. Even though I'm not yet really excited to drink fall beers, it is after Labor Day. It is acceptable. It's after You're willing a, to accept it, okay? Labor Day weekend, because you can drink fall beer seasonal beers as soon as the college football season starts. That's the cut. Um, no, that's that's the wrong way to put it, though, because you know that game in Ireland happened like a week before Labor Fair. Day. Week zero does not count. It's got to okay. be week one. Okay. Unless the Huskies play week zero, maybe it would be acceptable. Then I don't. What know. about on Labor Day weekend? Yeah, no, then it's okay. Okay. You could tailgate and drink a fall beer if you so desired, I suppose. Okay. But uh, anyways, the Flocktoberfest is Black Raven's fall seasonal lager. Brewed in the German Martzen style, this clean and balanced lager is the perfect summer into fall treat. This lager is crafted with traditional Czech-grown and malted barley for an authentic European malt flavor with a light, toasty undertone. Domestic and European hops provide a balanced, light hop profile. All right. I mean, we're we're fully off. We have entered Pelton Cast season, uh, and to have Sue Bird at the very top, uh, I think it's most important that we begin our toasts with you mentioned, uh, probably the most. Uh, I I don't know exactly how to describe it, but certainly the most accomplished athlete th- in that's, Seattle that's sports the history. Way to describe the most accomplished athlete in Seattle sports history. I mean, four championships, thirteen-time All Star, all-time leader in assists. Uh, retires with a career that all-time leader in games played, so many categories, retires with a career that is truly one of one. And the only question is, which area, you know, outside of Climate Pledge Arena, are they going to put the statue? And what will be the pose? I guess that's the other question. Are you okay with a statue if it's for Sue Bird? Because you're notoriously anti-statue. I mean, if I feel like there's anyone that's unlikely to, like, we have to have a debate about whether to bring down the statue... It's Sue Bird. I feel like we're probably pretty safe. That's your only concern is that you think in the future at some point a person may we we may get new light on them as a person and need to bring down the statue. I I don't know if you recall this was a bit of an issue with Joe Paterno. I think there were some other issues that were statues that were bigger issues, even than Joe Paterno. I well, yes, I'm saying that's the relevant fair point. That is a relevant comparison to a statue of a local sports icon. Uh, no one felt the same way about the Joe Paterno building on the Nike campus. That one was renamed much more quietly. So that's my position on the matter. Okay, fair enough. I, I think that, that I wish that there was like a greater point to this 
to your concern about statues that it should be that it was about like not celebrating an individual because individuals take such a large group of people to like build them up no one individual actually makes that big of an impact without their upbringing and their surroundings and all of the other people within the organization but no that is not your perspective <laughs> that is a fair point there are I... other points that could be made which i would consider much more salient than this but well, Your only issue, someone, only some, issue. Some would say that's true of most things that are said on the podcast. Somebody could become problematic in the future. <laughs> I mean, I the think next that next time we talk about your anti-statue take, you're gonna you're gonna have it so much more refined. No, I mean that's it. That's it. That's, that's it. Final that's form. There, that's there's it. no more to it. There never will be more. <laughs> okay, All right, fine. Build a statue. <laughs> I mean, look, she did. She never made it to a single ALCS, so maybe they won't build the statue. <laughs> but I, I think to your point, they the made one it thing to I would, an ALCS. They they made it. They made it to the equivalent of an ALCS. Yes, many times. Uh even this year's loss in the semifinals, equivalent. No, no, no. To... I'm saying, Ken Griffey Jr. and Edgar Martinez made ALCSs. The problem was they never made a World Series. Yeah. Okay. I'm saying she never played in a single ALCS. Oh, well, that's true. Didn't. Yeah. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> no, not one time. And nor did, again, the Mariners ever make the playoffs, play a playoff game in the entirety of it, her two decade WIP great career. It is truly incredible. I was in high school when Sue Bird started playing for the Storm. And I barely remember high school at this point. Right now, baby fantasy genius is way closer to high school than. than any of us not baby babyist fantasy genius yeah i mean yes fair oh my god so, i could have a child today and they would be closer to going to high school i'm not thank god um but they would be closer to going to high school than i am to being in high school or to sue bird's debut for the seattle storm correct yes I, so i i mean we talked about this a little bit at her last regular season game which was in some ways is emotional uh, a tribute to sue bird is this was and, and it was better attended that it had a sellout crowd it, it wasn't an enormous crowd for game four of this storm aces series really? on tuesday it night looked really good on tv looked good on tv it sounded incredible like it was very loud in the building like everybody who was there brought it from the opening tip uh no notes on the the crowd support from that standpoint but this celebration of Sue Bird's career has been a celebration of storm history as well and has brought so many people back. Tanisha Wright, the head coach of the Dream, who played for a long time with Sue, was part of the 2010 championship team, flew back to Seattle strictly for last night's game to be at the last one. Uh, other players, you know, former Storm players in attendance, Sheree Sam, who's part of the 2004 championship team, now works for the Blazers, has been at uh, all the playoff games. Simone Edwards has been here pretty much the entire summer, which has been awesome to see, also a part of that 2004 championship team. So I do think that whole It Takes a Village is being celebrated in this super moment. Just not celebrated by the statue itself. Uh, <laughs> Lauren Jackson could also have been there had she chosen to. Uh, she could have busy with the preparations again for the FIBA Women's World Cup coming up two weeks from the day this podcast is released. Lauren Jackson could have made sure that this wasn't Super's last home game, uh, <laughs> or last game, I suppose. You think Sue was going to tip the difference in the series? Lauren? LJ? Uh, yes, I'm sorry. Yes, Absolutely. LJ. 
Oh boy. But no, I, I mean, I thought this playoffs, I, I guess, I, I don't know if we're talking about the storm playoffs in general right now, if we should just get into it or. Yeah, let's do that here. And then we can talk about the off season when we get to the storm section. I, I was really impressed just in general with the playoffs though. And the atmosphere and this series against Vegas to me again, with, you know, a limited history with the WNBA um, after I was fired. Um, <laughs> Still not fired. The, it was straight up, it felt like NBA playoff basketball, that series against the Aces. Like, the atmosphere, seeing it on TV, the broadcast, the people who were there, the excitement, the emotions. It was like watching a very, very, very good NBA series. And the back-and-forth nature of it. Having, like, like Chelsea Gray, I was trying to even think of who to compare her to. And, I mean, you talked about, like, the shot creation, but also just, like, the devastating nature the, of Chelsea Gray when she would take a shot and you're just like it's going in especially in that game four I mean she was just as good as game three like her her shooting percentage I think actually may have gone down I guess I, I think that was in game three not necessarily in game four but uh one of the thoughts I've had so many thoughts watching Chelsea Gray over the course of the series but there's this famous video of Rudy Gay isolating at the end of the game to take a shot and the funny thing is, I think the video was actually taken when Rudy Gay was in Toronto and it's a Raptors fan screaming, no, not him, because he doesn't want Rudy Gay to take the shot, is I think my recollection of it. But then they, like, they edited over a game winner that he hit subsequently. And that's exactly what I was thinking. It's like screaming, like every time Chelsea Gray got a shot, you're just screaming, no, not her, anybody but her, even though the Aces have the literal MVP of the league. Asia Wilson, who was awarded on on Wednesday, they have Kelsey Plum, who is MVP of the All Star Game. They have a fourth All Star this year in De'Ara Kahambi, uh, or Jackie Young. I didn't even mention. So four All Stars this year. Chelsea Gray wasn't one of them, which she's been on fire ever since she wasn't picked for the All Star Game. So I think Storm fans should just blame the WNBA coaches who didn't pick her for the All Star Game. Go back and check my picks. She was on my team. There we so, go. Don't blame me. Uh, yeah, I mean, and then like you were like, well, why don't they just double team her? And the thing is also Chelsea Gray is better at passing than she is at shooting. <laughs> so she that's a problem. reminds me game-wise of like James Harden almost. But yeah, actually, that's not a bad one. Yeah, I feel like Harden was the one watching it where I was like, this is, but that's, I, I don't but, know. I, but I'm just it's very general. different because Chelsea Gray, it's like the mid-range shot making, which is the one th- piece that doesn't exist in James Harden's game. Yes. So but what I'm just, telling you is Chelsea Gray is a better version of James Harden. I mean, it's kind of true, at least in this series. He doesn't get to the free throw line as much as James Harden does. Uh, but again, like, it was fun to even have that foil in the series. I know the Storm oh, yeah. didn't win. They didn't go into the finals. I think it would have felt... I think playing in the finals would have felt a little empty. Like, obviously, winning would have been great or whatever. But, like, this was the series. And, you know, playing the series against the Aces. And, the like, how tight every single game was. And, you know, these moments. Having the three back-to-back game winners or whatever, right? Like, that was... An incredible moment in WNBA history that happened. Um, it was sad that the storm couldn't continue in overtime, but just like those two home games, to me, it just made me feel like, why are we not doing seven game series here? What what is the hurry? I guess. Well, they again, the world championships start in two weeks. 
uh, already overlapped at the end of the WBF. What's the difference? If, if for the conference championships or whatever you call them, the semifinals and the championships, those should be seven game series. Also, I mean, we're trying to build this shit up for TV right now. And you know what TV wants is more content. Like, I don't think anybody is just like, let's have less of this Ace of Storm series than we had. I, I agree. I, I think eventually we'll get there in terms of the seven game series. Right now, the WNBA is more concerned about expanding the regular season for a couple of reasons. Number one, it is more difficult than people realize to sell tickets to these games last minute, which is why the attendance for game four wasn't as good as you would think it was would be for what was potentially it turned out to be Suber's final game. Uh, and then number two, I think eventually the WNBA on their next TV deal is probably going to go to the MLS model where they sell all of the local games to a single streamer or broadcaster. And so having the inventory of the regular season games, because you know, you've got two or three games a night is a bigger deal than having the longer playoff series, even though those draw better ratings individually. I'm going to tell you this right now. I don't, I don't know who WNBA brass are, but they are wrong on both accounts. Like, and uh, I suppose just, in, do you think Kathy Gilbert is the listener? Increasing revenues, I get it. That's an important aspect of it. Being able to expand, that's an important aspect of it. Although, like, we are straight up in like seventies W or seventies NBA era, where you just look around, like you were talking about the players that are on the Aces, and you look around at every single team, and they have a like MVP candidate or whatever, right? I mean, like, that's the, that's probably sixties NBA, seventies NBA, not not so much. Uh, a lot of expansion, but the flux of talent right now is pretty extreme in the WNBA. Yeah. Uh, but the, the issue is it has to be the other way around. It can't be the regular season guiding the playoffs. It has to be the playoffs becoming very, very important and the magnitude of it fe feeling bigger. That's how you get people to buy tickets. It's about like increasing the magnitude of the events and the events feeling important. And when you were watching those games, they felt important. And I think that's what's that's the most important aspect of it. It's honestly the same as baseball, right? Like baseball, you watch unless it's the Mariners, of course, um, they're the Rashad Penny of, of baseball. But <laughs> like when you're watching a random major, like I was watching the fucking Padres Diamondbacks earlier and it's just background noise. It doesn't matter, right? Like this game doesn't definitely doesn't matter to the Diamondbacks and to the Padres. It matters, but it just doesn't matter. And so selling more of those games, there's no magnitude of the Diamondbacks Padres game. I don't need to see that. If that's a playoff game though, that matters a hell of a lot more. And I, I think tr trying to take the baseball model, the MLS model, is the wrong way to do it. The people who get it are, the, honestly, the NBA for having an absurdly long playoffs. I don't, right? I don't know if you're aware of it. The NBA plays a lot of regular season games, they, though, too. Well, people are, people are unhappy about the number that. But they do have an absurdly long playoffs. They and do, in the yes. NFL, where you only have 16, 17 games, and then each game matters so, so much. But, like... I don't know if I really see it with the adding a regular season game. I don't think that individual WNBA regular season games, they don't, aside from a small handful, they don't feel like they matter that much. But then you watch one of these games and you're like, that was very exciting, intense basketball. I want more of this. I want more of two of probably the best teams in the WNBA playing each other. I don't need more of the Storm playing at noon in fucking June. <laughs> yes fair i mean I, the other thing i would consider probably is like reducing the number of playoff teams and then making the 
the series longer because we also don't need the aces playing the mercury in the first round and sweeping them that that did not have the tension and drama of this series uh do you want to talk about the sue's final game and and uh, everything associated with that like my perspective on it yeah i mean i, I you've obviously covered sue were you working for the storm in 2002 or no you hadn't started no I was just on a credential then keeping stats. It was the next summer was my first summer as an intern. Were you at Sue's first game? Yes. So you were both at Sue's first. Do you think there's almost anybody else who is at Sue's there's some first season ticket holders, but last game? Like, again, I, as I mentioned after that last regular season game, they showed the video of her first game. There weren't a lot of people there. <laughs> there a lot of people in the building. And I, there is a pretty considerable turnover. So I think there was a lot of fans who who saw who were at the first and last. But uh, it's not a huge number, certainly. Um, I was at Russell Wilson's first and last home Seahawks games. Well, well, there you go. So that's why, like, I would have been so devastated, you know, as I've said before, if Sue had retired last year and had missed her last game. Thrilled that she came back and... Uh, low-key thankful that the timing of getting COVID lined up that I was uh, out of isolation and able to attend these last two games. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's been my focus. All It's been something I've been thinking about since Sue announced she was going to coming back is like this moment. But it was kind of interesting because there's like no playbook for exactly what's going to happen because it's something that's going to, you know, Unless you win the championship, it's something that's going to be in kind of a shocking, disappointing fashion in all likelihood. And Sue kind of headed toward the locker room at first with the rest of her teammates before veering back and and getting hugs from all the Aces players and coaches. And that's when the, you know, the crowd was already standing ovation the entire time. But that's when, you know, things really got emotional and Sue acknowledged the crowd and started unsuccessfully trying to hold back tears and you know, was on the court for an extended period of time. I mean, you know, it's tough to think of a comparison. I think in Seattle sports history, probably the only thing that would compare to that is like the ovation that the 95 Mariners got after they lost in the ALCS. Uh, I was thinking uh, the Sonics the, in the last home game. That wasn't necessarily afterwards, was it? It was through kind of the timeouts at the end of that game. Right? I wasn't there. I didn't go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, uh, also build the statue of a rod hugging Joey Cora oh, on the in the dugout really after should. that game. More, more A Rod statues. <laughs> yeah, I know how you feel about A Rod statues. <laughs> uh, so then she finally disappeared back into the tunnel. There was a really great shot of her entering the locker room for the final time and the door closing. Uh, it was the longest post game of any game I've ever attended. I think even more so than like finals games, uh, because. Like Becky Hammond and Noel Quinn talked, then the Aces players talked, then Sue, and then after that, Jewel Lloyd and Brianna Stewart came out because the one thing I was wondering about when Stewie didn't come out before Sue is like, is she just not going to talk to the media because she literally tied the record for most points in a playoff game with forty two <laughs> points, and yet it was just such a complete afterthought on every level because the Aces go to the finals and it was Sue's last game. Uh. Sue took the usual questions and, you know, I pretty much held it together the entire time until then, like she thanked the media at the end of her press conference at that moment was like, that's, that's too much. So it was a a brief moment, but no no actual tears were shed. When she acknowledged you. (laughs) And Um, not me personally. (laughs) Still just in general, when you were finally seen. (laughs) 
Uh, and so I was working on, uh, is I think I've maybe alluded to on this podcast, uh, our kind of Sue Bird career feature I've been working on for well over a month here, dating back to July and capped that off with a scene from, you know, everything that happened post game. And then also wrote a news story on the aces reaching the finals and a news story on Sue's final game and didn't get out of the building until 1am. Nice. How long will they let you stay there? Uh, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if there was any point where I was going to specifically get kicked out, but uh, it was the last three of us who were left in the media room, including the the Storm's PR person, all left together. So, you know, quite an emotional night. Certainly, one that uh, I I will never forget. I I think it is it, it, to to play your last game in a competitive nature. I think is really and to honestly have it at home. Like they would have preferred to have won and played a game five in Vegas. But to have that moment happen at home and at the end of a game like that, that was so back and forth and down to the wire, I, I think it's the exact right way for it to happen, you know? And it is, it does become about more about the team and more about like Sue as a player than it does, you know, like somebody like Kobe Bryant basically like had to make the moment about, he had to create the spectacle, you know, because it was just a random, it was a game nobody was going to the playoffs after that, right? Like, if it would have just been like, and Kobe random... did create the spectacle. Somehow that oh, became no, a way this... more exciting game than the Warriors setting, literally setting the record for wins in a season at the exact same time. No, I mean Kobe had an amazing moment. There's no no criticism to that. But have, but uh, yeah, they, I understand what you're saying. Like the competitive aspect of it, I think really made it like it just made the whole thing you know so much more important. Like having the game on the line plus you're thinking in your head like this is sue's last game right i mean the stakes were so high they just couldn't be any high i mean chelsea gray hit that three right where it was i don't know who was who went under the screen and it was just like you just fucking ended sue bird's career right there (laughs) i mean game three was really tough in that regard i mean it wasn't the last game for sue but to fall behind in the series and to ruin sue having like the storybook moment of hitting the game winning three with under a second left in her final season like oh man yeah that is brutal that that is man well sports are cruel sometimes Uh, the the curse isn't even in effect and sports are still cool sometimes. But yeah, I mean, it was better in, in that regard to have it at home. If it had been in Las Vegas after game five, it, it would probably not have been the same level of emotion or the same level of appropriate finish uh, from that standpoint. It was also really kind of interesting since we decided not to run the Subert feature until after her final game. Like I got to read like all of these other tributes to Sue Bird. Uh, you know, among Seattle writers, uh, Greg Bishop did a really interesting piece on SI.com that was their cover story. Jerry Brewer had uh, a column for the Washington Post that ran on Tuesday on the day of the game, uh, kind of talking about Sue's authenticity and her, her growth into that over the course of her career. And it was kind of amazing because you kept being worried like someone was going to write something very similar to what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And there's just so much to Sue's career, so many layers that to it, that it was kind of amazing that all of these pieces just were, had completely unique perspectives and none of them were really the same at all. Well, it's funny on this podcast that we're talking about 
you know, like, obviously, we've already memorialized Russell Wilson, but, like, this is the week that Russell Wilson comes back. We're literally previewing Russell Wilson's return. And to take those two athletes who, over the last decade, were two of the most important athletes in Seattle, uh, it is definitely, it is a changing of the guard in Seattle. But it's exciting to see, you know, I know we have more toes to get to, um, but that we'll also be talking about things that are fresh and exciting here. And to see that, you know. There's a new generation taking the torch. Yeah, it's it's a it's a strange time. And part of that new generation taking the touch. New who? <laughs> the moment finally came. Everyone was anticipating the day when New Who would finally score his long awaited first goal with the Seattle Sounders. And it finally happened on Sunday. Couldn't have been at a more important time in their must win home match against the Houston Dynamo. A clinical finish with his off right foot after a shot rebounded to him in the box in the second half of Sunday's rare Sounders FC win over Houston. It was his 136th MLS cap, including 98 starts, and finally a goal for New Hope. All right. That's that's the only time you're willing to acknowledge the Sounders. Uh, Also, to Sue Bird's, I can't say better half after this tribute we just gave to her, but uh, her fiance, Megan Rapino, named NWSL Player of the Month for August after netting four goals and three assists in the month, including the game winner at Orlando. This is Rapino's fourth Player of the Month honor, tying former Reign teammate Kim Little for the most in NWSL history. Uh, wanted to toast to third Pelton brother, Mike Sean Dugar and his co-host Christopher Kidd will be hosting a live episode of their Seahawks man to man podcast this Friday at 7 PM at the Roanoke. Uh, we, where is that technically? It's not, is it ca- still like, Capitol Hill? Oh, it's Capitol Hill. It's like okay. East Capitol Hill. Uh, I, I plan to be there. North, in the North Capitol Hill. It's, it's on the like grade down, you right. know, right. are you, you going to be there? Absolutely. So very excited to see this since we're not doing a live Pelton cast leading up to the start of the Seahawks season. Awesome that the Seahawks man-to-man podcast is taking that torch and doing I this. can't freaking wait. No, this is awesome. I mean, this is the, the best outcome for me personally. I mean, the listener who attended has attended uh, or the virtual live show or the last one we did knows what an incredible live show guest Mike Sean is. Oh, yeah. I, I can't freaking wait for this. Uh, I'm very excited. I'm also very fascinated how they're going to do a live show at the Roanoke. Uh, <laughs> but we'll see. Yeah, me and Mrs. Fantasy Genius will be there. Uh, you're planning on coming out. I'm excited for this one. Nice. And Leslie, a toast to you for getting your Omicron-specific booster. Big day. Well, and I mostly just wanted to mention that uh, uh, as of today at the place that I was at, at a Walgreens in Renton, uh, it was the first day that they had the shot. So mostly just letting letting people know that if they're interested in that uh, booster, which they should be interested. Um, that aside from you, who just had COVID, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna give it a couple months here. Uh, that it is available because I think you know some of the language around it was a bit confusing, and the the like rollout wasn't as clear as it has been for some of the previous vaccines, uh, uh, which also maybe have not been that clear. <laughs> this oh, no. one was even less clear. Uh, so I I definitely was just like, this is the Omicron booster, right? Like I asked way too many times, and they were just like, yes, please shut up. all right with that let's get into the roundup and we start with the nba seattle update sponsored by our friends at pagliacci pizza do we uh so also on tuesday night as we were all sitting in the media room at climate pledge arena a tweet comes across the uh 
I, I don't know how word tweets come across the tweet deck. You're acknowledging uh, this. I'm a little surprised you're acknowledging this. I think we need to mention it. An AP stringer based in Las Vegas tweeted that the NBA will announce expansion to Seattle and Las Vegas during the October 3rd Blazers Clippers preseason game at Climate Preds Arena. Now, my immediate reaction was skepticism and then checked around on this. And uh, the skepticism was uh, uh, shared by everyone else I talked to, I guess would be the way to put it. Uh, this, this tweet was subsequently deleted. I I think I go back to, and you know, people ask me about this all the time. I said on this podcast, look, the timeline is new CBA this year, new TV deals in 2024, then the NBA talks about expansion. And the other reason that timeline makes sense is the building that the OQ group is building in Las Vegas, hoping to attract an NBA team, is not going to be complete until 2026. You're not going to announce expansion in 2022. That's not going to happen into 2026. I mean, maybe there's some world where, you know, you could stagger the entrance of Seattle and Las Vegas. Obviously, we saw that on the other side in the NHL where Vegas came first because they had the building done and Seattle came second. But again, everything that I have heard points to if there is going to be expansion, it will not happen or be announced until 2024 at the earliest. So it was amusing. Uh, the athletic. That was your wet blanket update? I mean, your NBA Seattle wet blanket update. I ooh. Don't get your hopes up. I want you to be wrong so bad. I'm going to mock you so much when you're wrong. I mean, I, I want you to be this. wrong I don't so know bad. This, this shit, but like. Uh, Tashawn Reed of The Athletic, who covers the uh, Raiders, had a piece on Las Vegas sports in their future. It was kind of interesting to hear uh, Tim Laiwiki, who you know, was responsible with OQ Group for building Climate Pledge Arena, in addition to now this forthcoming arena in Las Vegas, talk about how important it was to have an arena in case the NBA owners didn't want to share uh, T-Mobile Arena there in Las Vegas, where the Vegas Golden Knights play. I thought that was very amusing, given, I mean, I Look, I think things will work out fine with probably some shared ownership if there's an NBA team at Climate Pledge Arena. He doesn't own, own the Vegas amusing. team, though. He's not involved in that, right? I mean, they're no, not the Golden Knights. No, they're just and he does and has no stake in the arena either, right? Well, he originally was behind it when he was working at AEG, but that is their rival now. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tim Lowicki has his hands in pretty much everything in the arena world, safe, suffice it to say. As long as it leads to a fucking basketball team in Seattle, I don't care, but <sighs> there'll be no statues built for these people. All right, with that, it is time for your favorite segment. Don't burn yourself. We got Mariners hot takes coming at ya. Play by Carlos After last week's apparently scorching hot takes, which I heard your feedback, and I'm sorry to say y'all's perspectives are so fucking dated, they should be modeling for the Kith Fall collection. But anyway, I'm here for a modest proposal and some more positivity. 
seeing the Mariners with a 99.6% chance of making the playoffs, I started to realize we should not just be happy to make the playoffs for the first time since Sue Bird debuted in Seattle, but should be hoping, no, expecting to make our first World Series. If you look at the schedule after May 25th, 2022, and I'm not just choosing that date at random, and I'm also not somebody who would say you could look at a random date and be like, well, the schedule after this arbitrary date that I picked, then they get really good, so that's why we're looking at that. No, I also didn't pick that date because it's my birthday. I was going to say. It is the last day that the Mariners played a game before Sam Haggerty made his first season start as a Mariner. Since Sam Haggerty's first start, the Mariners have been hotter than Chelsea Gray with a record of 59-32 and 32 and a win percentage of 648, the best record in the American League since that time. This is also including games that Sam Haggerty didn't even start in. Do you remember May 25th? It was an eternity ago. This isn't like we're cherry-picking two weeks ago or whatever. May 25th, Cal Raleigh had an OPS of 543 and like a 100 batting average. We hadn't even been introduced to Dark Brandon yet. The Mariners were hitting fucking J.P. Crawford cleanup in the lineup. They had not figured it out yet, and things have changed since then. And also... It's not just the record since that time. There is a path to the World Series. Per baseball reference, the most likely outcome is the Mariners will finish as the first wild card, hosting the Rays in the first round. But the other most likely outcome is that the third wild card, Orioles or Blue Jays, will defeat the Guardians as the third seed, leaving the Mariners with the Yankees in the ALDS, who they have laid out like the crab feeder this season setting up a showdown with the Strohs for the pennant, which is a chance I'm willing to take because this time, with those stakes, the spit will be real and everyone will know it. Wow. The path to the World Series. I mean, it's not its not inconceivable. It's actually not nearly as hot a take as last week. The Mariners continued winning last week, even without... Sam Haggerty starting any of the games in Cleveland went 6-0 on the road trip to Detroit and Cleveland, capped with a 6-3, 11-inning win on Sunday in a game that took over eight hours to complete due to a four-and-a-half-hour rain delay. Gotta say that when it seemed to take something out of the Mariners as they returned home to host the White Sox and dropped two of three in that series, Haggerty has not started since the Spider-Man near catch in his final game, in the final game at Detroit. I'm going to need like Dateline NBC on what's going on here with Haggerty because it doesn't make any sense. I'm giving Scott Service the benefit of the doubt, but like there have been two Taylor Trammell starts since that time period. I'm assuming that Sam Haggerty is injured and is too injured to start, but he's gotten a lot of at-bats and has played in the field. And I, again, I, I will, I will give Scott Service the benefit of the doubt. If they look around, and they think that Taylor Trammell is better suited to be starting than Sam Haggerty or Jesse Winker or any other player on the roster for that matter. It is Carlos wrong. Santana. He has a, he has a 1.9 war in like 40 games. I mean, the record with Sam Haggerty 
which we have not been able to uh, uh, update in a period of time here because he hasn't been starting. It still speaks for itself. The Mariners remain, the 2022 Mariners with Sam Haggerty starting have won 75% of their games. So we continue keeping watch on that at some point when he starts again. I just, I don't buy that it's a coincidence. I don't know if I would say it's a coincidence. I don't know if it's sustainable, but it's not a coincidence. You saw the record from the first second he started. Uh, Mariners won back of Tampa Bay for the top wildcard spot after today's loss. Half game ahead of Toronto in second and four games up on Baltimore for that last wildcard spot. Uh, in the wake of last week's take. He he is war one, two, three of hitters. One, two, three, four, five. He's six on the team in war and has played basically half the games of any of those other players. He's started in 36 games. We do know that from the watch. We bring back one of your favorite segments, which may not be this week. The listener email from the listener, third Pelton brother, Zach Jabal. (laughs) I don't even know where to begin with Tristan's (laughs) incredibly bad Ichiro hot take from episode 327 so i'll start with the fact that it upset me so much that even after being awake for an hour in the middle of the night with my 11 month old daughter i couldn't fall back asleep before i wrote this as the timestamp on this email which is 5 50 a.m will indicate so much of what tristan said is so utterly wrong and ridiculous that i don't even think there's much point to further refutiate but i think the most wrong-headed thing was this You could perhaps make an argument, a flimsy and a bad faith one for sure, (laughs) that Ichiro is overrated to some extent as a player. It's true that his pure offensive contributions, ignoring base running, were not quite to the level of some of his contemporaries, and the thing that he was best at as a hitter is of some value, but not an extreme amount. Of course, all the other stuff he did, field, throw, run the bases, he did at a very high level, and despite what Tristan apparently learned in a nearly two-decade-old book, that shit does matter to win it, which is why it's folded into war, the real version, not the offense-only one. <laughs> but fine. Underrating Ichiro's contributions as a player or blaming him for the failures of multiple terrible GMs is something that Seattle sports commentators have been doing since 2001. Surprised Tristan didn't mention anything about him not speaking enough English, though he certainly has in previous episodes. Which I don't it, think that's true. Not, never. No. Yeah, I don't think that's true. Yet I simply cannot fathom how someone could come to the conclusion that Ichiro was boring. As the saying goes, Tristan, you told on yourself there. One of the things that was most compelling about Ichiro from the moment he joined the M's is how different he was as a player from anyone not just in MLB at the moment, but in some sense from anyone who had played in many decades. Everything from his style of play to his mannerisms to the literal way he wore his uniform put him in stark contrast to many of his peers. He was a breathtaking fielder, a great base runner, and he achieved a great deal of offensive success despite rarely hitting home runs. If this doesn't connect with you, I'm pretty sure I know who to blame, and it's not the guy who's in the Murders Hall of Fame. (laughs) Finally... One of the great joys of baseball is that even as we have moved more and more to somewhat somewhat homogenous style of play, the kinds of people who can excel at the sport are more physically diverse than in basketball or football. So think of the particularities of the sport allow for this. I can't claim that Ichiro inspired me in that particular regard. My baseball dreams were already over by the time he joined the Mariners, but undoubtedly he did for many, many players, not just in Seattle, but around the world. 
I honestly cannot believe that someone who claims to love Seattle sports can have this much animosity towards a Seattle icon. One who, it must be noted, never requested a trade and then assisted it only be to one specific team. I'm sure that some of it is amplified for the sake of the podcast, but I suspect not all that much, which he is correct about. Editor's note. Sure, the Mariners didn't do a lot of winning when Ichiro was all around, but none of the other greats have taken this team past the ALCS either. I still love Felix Hernandez, even though he never reached the playoffs. And I treasure my many memories of Ichiro as a Mariner, no matter what the team's record was. Winning is never a guarantee. And while I certainly hope that we are at the beginning of a new and glorious era for Mariners baseball, I intend to cherish Julio's career wherever it may go, just as I did Ichiro's. It is kind of funny that none of my animosities led to Felix at all. <laughs> no, it's so ridiculous. It's just about the 2001 Mariners. It is. <laughs> Uh, I, you said you admitted that you were on the same page as me in 2001, though. You've just gone back and changed your perspective. I think, yeah, in the last 21 it, fucking years, I've evolved my positions. It's a combination of, and, and you know, like, God, what is the, the office quote where it's like, he was my great, my biggest enemy, and over time we became close friends or whatever? Um, you know, I'm talking about this, Dwight, Dwight Schrute and Andy. Uh, they became good friends because because they were enemies and rivals. Uh, I've spent like I literally am watching YouTube videos of Ichiro highlights. <laughs> Nobody else, right? And I think it's a combination of Ichiro was definitely an overrated baseball player. Like I feel feel like that's almost indisputable that he was at least somewhat overrated. Sure, whatever. Can you accept that? Fine. And my own personal animosity toward the 2001 Mariners. <laughs> That's a lot of it, man. <laughs> I let it go. Like, my annoyance about the coverage of the 2001 Seattle Mariners was mostly about how it related to the 2001-02 Seattle Supersonics. And given that the Sonics have been gone for 14 <laughs> years, I've let it go. I just, I've had no reason to let it go. Like I, I don't. I've had no reason to revisit. I've let any animosity. You've had the no Mariners reason go. to revisit it. You, I think you revisited it when you came up with the fucking take last week, brother. I just, I crunched the numbers and the numbers spoke to me. But <laughs> <laughs> they spoke to you and said, "Cherry, pick us." I, I, it's really funny because I fight with Luca about Ichiro like at least once a week. That's again, this is evidence. This is not just for the podcast. This is not, uh, you know, an act. It's a legitimate problem. We're gonna have an intervention at <laughs> some point. It's a problem. No, no. I, I have come to a very. I, I understand it. I get it. It's at this point, it's more fun because people love Ichiro, and you're it's you now you're pushing the buttons. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm willing to admit that because it's fun poking that because I had no idea that people felt so. I thought everybody kind of felt the same way as me. <laughs> what? If everyone felt the same way as you, then it wouldn't be a, a counter take by definition. I didn't think it was that hot of a take. There, there were one of one or two people that didn't think it was that hot of a take, including <laughs> Chris Smith. Chris Smith? Didn't he say that? No, I don't think so. Okay, maybe I misunderstood that. I, you know, it's interesting, Zach mentioned inspiring players, and I feel like watching Stephen Kwan is interesting in the context of the Ichiro debate. Uh, Stephen Kwan walks more than Ichiro did, but that guy is such a fucking... Literally painting. everybody walks more than Ichiro did. That's not okay. true. Not true. 
Steve, that guy is such a fucking pain in the ass. Is an oh, opposing player awesome. like is the highest compliment I can pay to him. And... I'm sure if I had children who are playing baseball when Ichiro is playing, to a certain extent, I would be like, you should be watching. Like when with Julio, I'm like, watch these things, right? Watch every single thing that Julio does because he does it pretty much perfectly. He looks like the way like fucking training videos or whatever. I'm not like watch Cal Rally because Cal Rally is like a per- the Cal Rally is awesome and he's amazing and I love Cal Rally, but it's not like he's not like a perfectly crafted baseball player. You're, or you're not like watch Hagerty. Hager, no, I'm saying literally Julio Rodriguez. You watch a video of somebody being like, "Here's how you should swing," and then you watch Julio swing, and you're like, "What? How is that possible?" I don't think Hagerty has like the perfectly polished game that there, Julio there a has. Joke. He, he's a joke. he hits like a robot. Watch in the best the, uh, possible way. The headband underneath the hat, and see what I, you can I'm take for that. Trying to get trying to get Luca to do it. That's why you're resist, resisting so far. He's got an L.A. Dodgers headband. I mean, he does? Yeah. I didn't know. Anything else on Ichiro? <laughs> no. I. Let's talk about your other least favorite subject. I, if anybody is at the Roanoke, I will happily fight with you about Ichiro. Oh, good. Right good. Your other least favorite subject, the Seattle Sounders, who suffered yet another brutal loss last Wednesday. They took a 2-0 lead in a game delayed by thunderstorms in Orlando, getting goals from Albert Rushnak in the first half and Rel Rediaz just after the break, only to see Orlando City almost immediately answer with a goal, equalize on their second penalty of the game after Stefan Fry saved the first, and in stoppage time, had a shot deflected in goal that was originally ruled outside on the field before being overturned to a goal by VAR, handing the Sounders their record 15th loss, the most in any season in the franchise's MLS history, with, I believe at that point, seven matches to go? Uh, I mean, they just haven't lost that many matches before this. It's not like there's really nothing to compare it to. Uh, for the second consecutive game, Brian Schmetzer went back to a back three for that, uh, three center backs for that one, but the team was swamped in expected goals, leaking badly on defense. Sunday was a game of first, obviously, that knew who goal, but also Nico Ladero was stopped on a penalty for the first time in his oh. MLS career. Shortly after that, however, knew who set up a Freddie Montero header, and the Sounders did get a much-needed 2-1 win at home against the Houston Dynamo. Despite the win, Sounders still six points out of a playoff spot, 0.16 points per match off the pace, so their soccer power index playoff odds barely budged from 15% to 18%. A much tougher test coming for the Sounders on Saturday as they host Austin FC, which is second in the West. They're second in in MLS in goals behind 20 from forward, uh, Argentine forward Sebastian Briusi, who ranks, you guessed it, second in the league in scoring. So, Sounders again need a full points from this one. Will be difficult. Oil Ring coming back from the international break. Uh, key matchup Fridays, they host the Chicago Red Stars. Red Stars just one point back in the standings entering that one. All right, I mentioned this at the start. Let's talk a little about the storm offseason because. It's going to be perhaps the biggest one in franchise history. The Storm have just two players under contract going into the 2023 season, Jewel Lloyd and Mercedes Russell, who missed nearly all of this year uh, with a non-basketball injury that caused a uh, 
a headache syndrome that uh, sidelined her after five games. She is feeling better, just working her way back into basketball shape at this point. So we expect her back on the court next season. But you have two point guards retiring, both Sue Bird and Breon January, who also played her last WNBA game on Tuesday night as the Storm were eliminated. She is going to continue playing overseas this season. Uh, so not her final basketball game as it was for Sue. Uh, so the entire point guard depth chart is empty. Brianna Stewart, unrestricted free agent, still is of now uh, is the exit interviews on Wednesday. Unsure how her availability for next season is going to be affected by the prioritization clause that we've talked about that is going to require players to be back from overseas in time for the start of the WNBA regular season next year in 2024. That becomes the start of training camp, which is going to be a much more difficult obstacle for players to navigate who are playing overseas. Uh, that, that applies to anyone who has more than two years of experience. And also Gabby Williams in a similar spot where she's probably even less likely to be able to play in the WNBA next season because she's signed to play in France and their finals don't conclude until May 20th, which will probably be after the start of the WNBA regular season. Don't have the schedule yet, obviously, but, uh, uh, and that would be a big loss. Gabby Williams, uh, they traded Katie Lou Samuelson in the first round pick to get her. And she really came on over the course of the season, kind of finding her role in the offense, in addition to being an all defensive second team pick. So uh, that's a key question going into this offseason. Ezzy Megbulgore will almost certainly be back. She's a reserved player, uh, but Tina Charles is an unrestricted free agent, a third starter who's a free agent, and then also some of the key pieces off the bench. Uh, Stephanie Talbot will be unrestricted, uh, Epiphany Prince. So it there's going to be a lot of work for the Storm to do in free agency, and they're going to have to find a point guard to replace everything that Sue Bird brought to the table for the last two decades here. Who are some of those options looking like? I mean, obviously the dream scenario is Courtney Vandersloot coming home, the Kent native, as we've talked about, but Chicago Sky won, uh, yeah, one win away from the WNBA Finals going into Game 5 of their semifinal series will be Thursday night against the Connecticut Sun. I guess uh, if you're a Storm fan hoping for Vandersloot, root for Connecticut in that one. Uh, a little harder to leave if uh, if the team gets to the finals for a second consecutive year after winning the championship in 2021. If not her, I think it's a pretty significant step down to the next tier of free agent point guards. You're probably looking at someone like Erica Wheeler from Atlanta. Uh, uh Let's see, Christy Tolliver, who is, you know, kind of on the back half of the back tail end of her career and uh, missed the start of this season because she was coaching for the Dallas Mavericks, where she's an assistant coach, would be someone who's an option. Um, so, yeah, it's not not necessarily the same caliber of players that uh, you'd like if it's not Courtney Vandersloot. How realistic is the Courtney Vandersloot conversation? It's not happening, right? It seems unlikely. I mean, the... The thing that got your hopes up was, you know, it took her a while for her to agree to a contract last year. And there was a report by my uh, by uh, ESPN colleague, Holly Rowe, that the original offer to her had been, I believe the term was disrespectful, but Vandersloot pushed back against that subsequently in public. And, you know, again, she's played her entire career in Chicago, so it, it might take a lot for her to leave. You know, it could be a thing like she finishes her career in Seattle, but she's got many years in front of her. I don't think, you know, she's in the same spot that like Breon January was coming back to her home state. What, 
they were not willing to offer Corny Vandersloot the max. This I guy. mean, she didn't end up signing for the max uh, in Chicago. And, you know, they kind of, everybody had to take a little bit less money to make sure that they could uh, put together as deep a team as they did. She ended up signing for 195000 this season. So is max money available in Seattle? I mean, anything is on the table. Yeah. Okay. So, so she took about thirty thousand less than her the supermax would be. And also, when we're talking about, I mean, I don't know where Courtney Vandersloot's making other money, but like thirty thousand in terms of professional sports doesn't sound like a lot of money. But when you're only making one hundred ninety five thousand, it's a significant amount of money. Correct. And and Sloot is one of the players who has spent her entire career going overseas. It's something that's very important to her in the same way that it is to Brianna Stewart, which is and won't, kind won't of be able to do that, presumably. I. I I'm not sure off the top of my head where she's playing this year and what that schedule looks like. I think she's also in Turkey with Stewart, so we will see on that one. She's gonna have to make only 195 thousand move back to Kent. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely cannot afford to live in Seattle. Uh, so, you know, we'll learn a little more. We'll we'll probably know more as we get closer to the WNBA offseason. Free agency doesn't begin until January. We've got an extended period until that. But going to be a big offseason for the Storm to try to figure things out and put together another championship contender next season without Sue Bird. Yeah, I'm fascinated to watch it. Is there one day when, when it'll be like everything's going down? I think February 4th. First, off the top oh, of my head, is the first day that you can agree to contracts, so or that that they can be made official. There'll be some news before that. We've seen it used to like not happen until February. Now the reports come out earlier, like during the NBA moratorium period. Who's the Woj of WNBA Twitter? There's a variety of people who who break news, but there's no one person or two people. There's a handful. I'm just gonna I'm gonna throw this out there. I'm giving a lot of advice to the WNBA on this episode. Find one person, rally around them, maybe two, maybe two people, rally around them and build up that name because that'll definitely be helpful. Like Woj is important for the sport of basketball. And and Shams. Without question. All right, let's talk about UW football. We've gone. Hello, to let's 45-20 wins Saturday versus Kent State. They did cover the spread, not doubled it, like I think was your prediction. <laughs> was that what it was? Uh, All of my expectations were met. Maybe they didn't win by 45, but every expectation for the game was met. And the biggest thing is just how good Michael Penix Jr. looked in his debut at quarterback back in Kalen DeBoer's offense. Completes 26 of 39 passes in this game for, I believe, 345 yards. So, very impressive stuff from Michael Penix Jr. W- what did you think? It was awesome. What do you, what do you mean, what did I think? <laughs> Four touchdowns. It was the best. Uh, everything about it was amazing. The way that Keelan DeBoer went in with a game plan of attacking the Kent State defense, right? Like, they, they ran the ball a little bit, but it was one of those situations where you pass to set up the run, and that is exactly what they did here in this game. Uh, the offensive line looked incredible. Uh, and I think Jackson Kirkland was out for this game, right? Correct. So he was, this game, he was ineligible for as part of the conditions to for his reinstatement by the NCAA after he entered the NFL draft. He's also dealing with 
uh, an injury issue. I don't think we know specifically what it is. That's what but, I was going to uh, say. I saw he was listed on the depth chart as an or, so I wasn't sure about that one. Right. The like, report I feel like from, it, you're probably starting Jackson Kirkland if he's coming back. The report from Ryan Grubb is that he's, quote, close to return. Okay. Uh, but but even without him, look, I understand it's Kent State. I was a little surprised not to see the Huskies receiving any votes uh, in the AP Top 25 poll this week because, they. I mean, again, like, I get that Kent State isn't, like, a big name, but they played in a bowl game last year, right? This isn't Wazoo playing against Idaho. Like, this is it, – it was still an impressive victory that UW had, and it was impressive fashion the way that they did it. Uh, but the offense in general just looked very, very exciting. I mean, I think Romo Dunze is somebody who I think we should be very, very excited about. Jalen McMillan, like Michael Penix as a passer. It was just like the first drive. It was like there was no fucking competition in camp. This was Michael Penix's job. <laughs> that, right? that was that was exactly what I said as well. Like if there was actually seriously a competition, maybe maybe that raises a concern about Kevin DeBoer. Uh, I, I mean, I think. The, but no, the... this is. Michael Penix has not been as good under other coaches outside of Kalen DeBoer. So, like, look, maybe Michael Penix just gets the system really, really well, or maybe Kalen DeBoer is really fucking good at coaching quarterbacks. I mean, I think what I my takeaway from the passing attack on Saturday was just how crisp it was. So, number one, Penix was playing with a clean pocket, as you talked alluded to Zero with the sacks. offensive line, no sacks. No hurries in this game. He scrambled a few times for uh, sometimes slid short of the first down. But, uh, you know, he was able to sit back there, go through his reads and find open receivers most of the time. And then the important thing that we saw in this game is he put the ball on them accurately. And I the two things I care about with a quarterback are accuracy and decision making. And I think arm strength is infinitesimally overrated for a quarterback. Obviously there has to be a certain ability to make throws, but the way you win games is to complete passes and gain yardage. And you do that by making accurate passes and deciding to throw those passes to the right people. And that's what we saw from Michael Penix Jr. Repeatedly throughout this game. It was incredible. No, I mean, I, I mean, I will say, I did go back. Like, I was curious, like, when was the last time the Huskies passing attack was this efficient? Dylan Morris did have a couple of pretty damn good games last season. He averaged 10.3 yards per attempt in the win at Arizona. That was 21 passes. And I feel like one of those was kind of a long catch and run that probably boosted that. But then he also put up 367 and 9.4 yards per attempt against uh, Arkansas State, which is a little weaker pass defense than Kent State, but maybe not by a lot. It, it never looked that easy, though. Like, it, it always felt like in the Dylan Morris, Jimmy Lake era or whatever, like, they were having to really work for it all the time. I don't know if they were having to really work for it. Maybe Arkansas not against State. Arkansas State. But, like, this was, these, this was an offense that it just looked natural, what they do. And it looked like the comfort with passing the ball in general for both of, again, both the play calling and the quarterback and the receivers. It was just like... Yeah, these are actual weapons at receiver. Like, we have good receivers. And they, again, they pass to set up the run. Like, it's going to be an issue in the Pac-12 this year. To me, I look at, right, we'll, we could talk about Portland State or whatever, but it's just September 17th is highly circled on the calendar, right? It, That's what we're going to find out. As we were watching that game, it was like, bring on Michigan State. 
Because when you were like, oh, do you think UW could beat Utah? Do you really think that? It was like, after this game, you have to think that, right? I could. It's within the realm of possibility. I, I don't think they're as good as Utah. Uh, yeah, balance among the receivers. We saw four different wide receivers catch at least three passes, each for at least 45 yards. Uh, Dunze had seven for 84 and a touchdown. Jalen McMillan, five for 87 and two touchdowns. Uh, three for 72 and a touchdown for Taj Davis and Jalen Polk, three for 45. I, I feel like very confident in all four of those receivers at this point. Yeah. And getting the ball to the receivers too. You know, this wasn't, I, I obviously like to use the tight ends, but it's just, this is an offense. I, I, that's it. As we saw some things, there was the flea flicker that, created two wide open receivers where Michael Pettix Jr. maybe chose the wrong one of the two. And if, you know, maybe he couldn't have gotten it to, I, I forget who was streaking deep, whether it was, which of the two was streaking deep, but uh, then there was pass interference. The one he, he hit uh, running game, still a bit hit or miss the running backs combined for 28 for one Oh four on the ground. Uh, Wayne Talapapa who got the start was the most effective by far. 11 carries 57 yards. Uh, the game's opening touchdown. So, you know, I think he kind of separated himself a little bit. I was Cameron Davis also scored a touchdown. I was surprised that they were basically using Will Nixon, who was kind of a wide running back wide receiver hybrid at Nebraska, is basically just a straight up running back, including running him at the goal line with Dylan Morris in the second unit in the game in the fourth quarter, which doesn't maybe seem like an ideal use of his skill set. I think that was there's running out the game. Like I I would not take too much from that. Okay. It was the very, very end of the first game. It's still interesting to see when Richard Newton gets back in the mix there as he works his way back from injury. Uh, I mean, also on the defensive side, though, Asa Turner, uh, somebody who's been in the program for quite a while, coming up with two picks in the game, obviously the first play of the game as a pick from Asa Turner. Uh, Savelle Smalls, who it's a little bit hard to tell when you're at the game and you're not watching on TV exactly which individual defensive players are doing stuff, but like Savelle Smalls with the tackles and from the chatter seems to be like, has put it together a little bit here in his, I guess, is this second season or his third season? I think this is a third. In his third season at UW, uh, finally starting to see something from Savelle Smalls, which I think we should have expected heading into this year. I thought the tackling at the second level was a little bit of an issue at the, they did an awesome job containing the Kent State rushing attack, other than basically when uh, Colin Schley. Uh, took off as the quarterback didn't see them get a lot on the ground with their running backs who had been very effective last season did have more effect uh, success kind of getting the ball to Dante Cephas and their receivers and seeing some breaking broken tackles at the second level uh, Jordan Perryman at cornerback left this game with what was described by the coaching staff as an upper leg injury but he's now day-to-day so chance he could be back for the Portland State game yeah, and most importantly, again, I think if it's close for Jordan Perryman, just sit him for Portland State. Yeah, focus exactly. on Michigan State. Yeah. Uh, do you have any Por- preview of Portland State? I do. Portland State hung okay. tough with San Jose State in their opener last Thursday, leading into the final two minutes of that one on the road before allowing the winning touchdown with a minute 11 remaining. Uh, dual threat quarterback Dante Sachere led the team with 83 rushing yards, went 24 of 37 for 270 yards, two touchdowns, two interceptions, taking over as their starting quarterback. 
Bo Kelly was his favorite target, catching nine passes for 133 yards and a touchdown. He finished with 980 receiving yards, 10 touchdowns last season. Portland State coming off a 500 finish in Big Sky play in 2021. So, obviously, a game that should go differently than the Montana game. Much like this, the Kent State one. That that was, again, if, if you're looking for, I was talking with Katie after, uh, and she was asking, uh, basically saying this is Kent State, right? We shouldn't get too excited about it. Which, again, it seems like the voters said, right? They didn't rank the Huskies in the top 25. I mean, FPI, I don't, well, they certainly shouldn't be in the top 25. They they FPI has the vote. FBI has them 40th, which is like, I think like one person could vote for them. That's right. Uh, but as I said to Katie, we lost to fucking Montana last year. It's it's all true. It's You just can't take for granted any of these games. And good teams lost to teams like this throughout the country. You know, it wasn't good teams lost to teams like Kent State on Saturday. So... By the way, the special teams, nothing but great. according to FPI efficiency, the biggest weakness in this, they rated 122nd so far in FPI efficiency, 23rd on offense, 59th on defense. The uh, kickoff coverage in particular was a uh, source of concern, I would say, in this one. It's one game. We'll see. Source of concern. Okay. Uh, chances of beating Portland State. I, I don't want to go too high out of fear. I'm going to say 95%. FBI says 98%. So you may be underselling this one. I'm I'm gonna like a solid 97. Okay. <laughs> well, let's talk like, about the Seahawks. The things we've seen last oh. year. Look, I mean the thing I, I posted this in our chat. I didn't realize until I was walking out of the stadium at about 10 30 last night, thinking about how quickly these I was gonna have to go to the storm game the next day. Uh and I was like, huh, this is a different feeling. I'm walking out of the game and I don't feel sad and upset. <laughs> and that's when it occurred to me that I did not attend a single UW football win in all of 2021. The, the Arkansas State and Cal games, their lone two home victories. I was out of town for both of those. I attended the road game at Michigan. Obviously, that was not a win. Uh, no wins in 2020 when no one attended any of these games. So I had not attended a UW win since the 2019 Las Vegas Bowl. A very different time in so many ways. I don't think I don't think I was at the Cal game either. You were at the Cal game? I don't really remember. I don't think I was though. I feel like you were. Hmm. I think it's been longer for me. Okay. Well, then it would be the 2019 Apple Cup. That was that was the game before that. That was great. I remember that. It was. You know, Chris Peterson was the coach of the football team back then. Wow. Believe it or not, I'm old enough that I remember when Chris Peterson coached the UW football team. Seattle Seahawks <sighs> opened the 2022 campaign on Monday night, hosting the Denver Broncos and newly extended quarterback, Russell Wilson. Any any thoughts on this game? Uh, on the game in general? Any thoughts on Russell Wilson's return? I can't wait for it. I'm uh, yeah, no, I'm I'm really excited for this one. I I'm excited for football being back in general. Uh, obviously, start. I think it's really nice to get this game out of the way early, rather than waiting until later in the season. 
uh, I mean, there's just so many ways that this could have been a less interesting return if it had happened later in the season. Because right now, the, the slate is clean for everybody. Yes. Like, the Seahawks can talk anonymously about, let's use the same formula that we won the 2013 Super Bowl. No, it's it's kind That's of amazing. fun that we could go into it with 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 the slate being clean, right? We have no baggage with Russell Wilson on the Broncos. We've got nothing, right? We we could go out there and anything can happen. We have some priors, but <laughs> we have some expectations. You maybe have different expectations than I do. Just for but, this one single game, to be clear. But it is pretty fun that there isn't any sort of history with Russell Wilson as a Bronco, right? This is it. And we might, you know, if this game happened in week 10 or something like that, we, you know, the Broncos could be eight and two at that point, or the Broncos could be four and six at that point. Like, uh, I I think, I guess that'd be week 11. Uh, <laughs> plus bye weeks, maybe. I don't know. Anyway, you get my point. Going into it as a brand new situation for both teams Right, we've seen Geno Smith as the Seahawks quarterback, but there are a lot of changes that the Seahawks made over the offseason. Uh, and then Russell Wilson is the Broncos' starting quarterback. The first time that we'll have ever seen Bro- Russell Wilson in a different jersey uh, in a regular season game, other than the Seahawks happening right here at Lumen Field, where he played his home games. It's it's going to be very intriguing. <laughs> That's it. I I don't know. There's not a lot else. <laughs> Uh, do we want to talk about the Russell Wilson extension at all? Yeah, can you break this down? I don't think I fully got into it. So officially a five-year extension on top of the two years that were left on his contract for $240 million with $161 million guaranteed. But the interesting thing is only a $4 million injury guarantee in 2026 beyond the first four seasons or the next four seasons. So the Broncos basically have an out that again, or an injury, which would only slightly change this, they can cut him in 2025 or in 2026 and make this a four-year, $161 million contract. So it's basically $40 million a year is what we're really talking about here. Now, I haven't broken down. It's tough to find what his contract was pre-extension, like how much actual new money there is. I think it still probably works out pretty well for Russell Wilson to just get like a massive infusion of new cash now in terms of a $50 million signing bonus, guaranteed option bonuses, sizable guaranteed option bonuses, I believe 20 and 22 million each of the next two years. So a lot of money up front, but the downside is these non-guaranteed base salaries of an average of about 45 million from 2026 through 2028, that realistically, there's no way he's ever going to play out those years like that. If, Either the Broncos are going to move on in 2026 or they're going to say, well, both so that you have some guaranteed money and that we don't have these ridiculous cap hits, we're going to convert a bunch of that to a signing bonus instead of making it straight non-guaranteed base salary. Yeah, it's it's fake money at the end of the deal. So, I mean, it's a slightly larger percent of the cap if you talk about the $40 million average than when Russell Wilson extended 
for his last time in Seattle, but it's not dramatically so. I think one of the things that's often misleading is that we talk about these contracts in dollar terms and it's like, oh, it's the richest contract in NFL history. Well, like, yeah, the cap keeps going up. No shit, it's the richest contract in <laughs> NFL history. It's not like the A-Rod situation we were talking about last week where the salaries aren't that different from 2001. The salaries are massively different from 2001. They're massively different even from five years ago. So, Would you be... It's a fascinating extension. Would you be comfortable if you were the Seahawks? Let's say that Russell Wilson is never traded. The offseason happens generally the same. With this exact deal, the Seahawks signing this deal. Yeah, I'd be comfortable with it. I mean, it's I, I think it's the kind of deal the Seahawks wouldn't do. Number one, it is a massive amount of upfront money. Uh, and I think that's probably the Broncos' new ownership group's willingness to spend factored into that. And number two, I again, I'd have to look back at like the details of Russell Wilson's last extension, but they're usually so reluctant to re- to guarantee money at time of signing beyond a couple of years, you know, the first couple of years of the contract. And that, I think, as I've said in the past, I think that lack of flexibility limits them from doing some of the more creative things like what the Broncos were able to do in this contract where the co- money in 2024, his base salary is already guaranteed. And then the, it's not until 2025 that it's kind of a Seahawks style. It doesn't guarantee until the fifth day of the 2024 count, uh, NFL year league year. Uh, it's It's an investment in Russell Wilson in Denver and an assumption that he's going to be a very good quarterback in Denver for at least a couple of years. But it's also not as long-term an extension is the idea of like, oh, seven-year contract with the five-year extension on top of the initial two makes it sound like. Do you think that with the way that quarterback contracts are going, right? Quarterback contracts are obviously getting bigger. Like you mentioned, everybody's contracts are getting bigger, but quarterbacks probably disproportionately to other positions. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the other thing that's happening is NFL teams are very slowly realizing that quarterback and wide receiver are the two positions that matter by far the most. And therefore we should spend all our money there. And actually we should be spending very little on the positions that don't matter at all. uh, And probably shouldn't be drafting running backs in the first round, but that's neither here nor there or the first two rounds. Wow. But do you think that getting a quarterback on a rookie deal now becomes that much more important or are quarterbacks, you know, like Kyler, sign the extension relatively early, right? I mean, that's, you know, another situation where, like, the Seahawks refuse to negotiate until I... I mean, Kyle Murray is going into his fourth season? Yeah, he's going into his fourth season. So that's, like, the Rams have typically extended players going into their fourth season. It's not uncommon, but it's also not necessarily the norm. I mean, it's it's going to become the norm for quarterbacks, though. You would think, yeah. But still, you're getting, I mean, Kyler is the first pick in the draft, but getting, even if it's three years of a very good quarterback at a reasonable cap number where you could spend money and look, you have to spend money the proper way everywhere else. Correct. Like it, it can't be trading two fucking first round picks for Jamal Adams and then for the privilege of paying Jamal Adams, right? Like you can't spend money terribly and still construct. construct you can't light money on fire. But you could spend money in other places yeah and um, the same you know like the bills paying one of the best quarterbacks in the league 
money that is not equivalent to one of the best quarterbacks in the league means that the Bills have one of the best rosters in the league in general. Well, I think the Chargers will be an interesting test of that this year, right? Because Justin Herbert hasn't been extended yet. He's going into his third season. Is still on a on that rookie deal. And that is what allowed them to go out and trade for Khalil Mack and add J.C. Jackson. So, you know, if the Chargers have a very successful season, I think that could be proof of concept. I mean, they knew they had to do it right now, right? They knew they had to make those deals this second while they had Justin Herbert at a lower cap hit. And then from there, that's going to change things. So I... It's it's important to find the quarterback no matter what, but if you're going to pay a quarterback this kind of money, the Russell Wilson money that we're talking about, you have to be pretty fucking certain that they're going to be one of the five to ten best quarterbacks in the league for that period of time. Well, this, I think, leads us naturally into a question that we also got from third Belton brothers, Zach Jabal. Uh What kind of outcome for both the Seahawks and Russell Wilson would con- lead you to conclude that it was right for the team to trade him. I'm honestly not even sure if I even agree with that sentiment, but I'd be interested to hear it. Like an everybody wins scenario or the scenario for, I mean, if Russell Wilson is bad this next year, well, yes, but, yes, but that's, that's, not, that's not a one. win for the Broncos. No, the point here is what is the outcome that's like, yeah, the Seahawks knew what they were doing. They traded Russ at the right time. I, I think that'd have to be it, right? We'd have to see, you know, there's the chatter from, I'm sure you read the story today that Brady wrote basically about Russell Wilson's exit. Third Belton brother Brady Henderson, my ESPN colleague, yeah. A, a little bit of a, a timeline for what happened with Russell Wilson and the Seahawks. Not a lot of new ground necessarily. We did learn the nugget that uh, John Schneider was all in on Drew Locke. <laughs> The the pieces the pieces that actually made me the most annoyed reading the story were that the Seahawks were at Pat Mahomes and Josh Allen's pro days or whatever, and did they go to no other pro days? Just those two? Uh, I don't know if it was just those two. Like it felt like it was going going out of their way to only pick really quarterbacks who ended up being really good. They did mention that the Seahawks were willing to trade Russell Wilson for Baker Mayfield, which didn't look quite as good in hindsight. No. Uh, And who knows? I I still think Baker's career could have gone a different way. Like, I'm not willing to say that it would have been an unmitigated disaster if they'd done that. Well, they were willing to trade him for the number one pick. I guess maybe they could have hypothetically drafted someone besides Baker. Josh Allen, right? They could have drafted uh, a safety. (laughs) They probably would have. (laughs) Uh, they could have even drafted Jamal Adams. Um, but the, I felt like that was sort of like cherry picking quarterbacks who ended up being really good and framing it like, well, John Schneider could have drafted Pat Mahomes. And it's just like, yeah, he also could have drafted Josh Rosen. Like, I don't, I I don't think you could just look at that as like the Seahawks, you know, the Packers didn't end up with every single player that they drafted. I don't think that was the point of that anecdote. The point I, was just I know, that, I know that the that Seahawks the going point. to quarterback pro days was annoying to Russell Wilson. I understand that, but they specifically mentioned basically the two best quarterbacks in the league. I, I mean, those are just the two most prominent ones that they went to. I, I don't know what to tell you, Chief. I get it, but I, I still think it framed things a little bit more positively for John Schneider. Anyway, irrelevant of that, like... Look, I mean, I think people realize that John Schneider brought in Jacob fucking Eason. Like, okay, like people know that John <laughs> Schneider does not have the golden touch when it comes to quarterbacks. <laughs> okay. But the, it's it's just so hilarious, like, seeing those as being, he was all in on those. And the next quarterback he was all in on was Drew Locke. 
or whatever. That's their guy. I, I still think that the Drew Locke piece of it didn't actually matter that much. I, I think that this piece overrated how much the Seahawks really thought that Drew Locke was like the linchpin of the deal or something. They made this trade because Russell Wilson wanted to be in Denver and they wanted to be good to Russell Wilson after his career in Seattle. Like it and Denver was willing to offer multiple first round picks, including and, and one that was in the top pick. 10. Yeah. Like there were a lot of reasons why Denver made a lot of sense beyond Drew Locke. And the Saints probably didn't have the package that made sense for the Seahawks. So I, I think all pieces were taken, a li- like, blown a little bit out of proportion about it. You know, like, I, I hand to God, I don't think that John Schneider thought that Drew Locke would be, like, the next great Seahawk or whatever. But but there's um, also, he's also a prospect that the New Orleans Saints, you weren't trading for Taysom Hill, okay? Yeah. Sure. Yes, I agree. I mean, but okay. So, so the thing that, that was highlighted the most for me was really thinking about how far out of their way the Seahawks went to not support Russell Wilson for all these years. And we've talked about this a little bit, but like you still look back at the penny pick, obviously only running back that matters, but like you look at the penny pick and it's such a glaring one, but also it's just kind of consistent. You know, the year after they hired Shane Waldron as, was this the, Waldron year that they drafted. No, that was that was Brian Schottenheimer's last year that they drafted Jordan Brooks. Uh, Waldron's first year they didn't have a first round pick, but like the the year of let Russ cook, they still didn't draft an offensive lineman in the first round, you know. And there's the the piece in there or the comparison of how much money they spent on offensive line during that time period. And they just didn't spend equivalent to everybody else, which is fine. But just priority wise and organizationally, the team. They, they do not have it in their bones to care about the quarterback and the offense that much. Pete Carroll and John Schneider, Pete Carroll mostly, I think, will always, always care about building a very good defense and a very good run game. And it's just not going to change. And that was the reality of Russell Wilson's entire career here. Uh, and he didn't end up in a situation where, you know, you look at, like, people are excited about Kirk Cousins this year in Minnesota and just how different something like that can look when you turn a very good quarterback over to a good offensive coach. And it just wasn't ever going to be the case. They were never going to prioritize Russ in the way that they should have prioritized. Russ. This is why we wanted Pete Carroll to be fired. It's not because he's a bad coach. He's just not the right fit for Russell Wilson. And he's also 70 years old. Like, (sighs) you know, it, it is what it is. Like those, but, prior, those priorities but, aren't necessarily evolving that much. There, there was a bit in there about how they felt like, it, you know, as a scrambler, he wasn't quite as good. You know, they don't feel like he's a great pocket passer, which I'm pretty sure there's some numbers that dispute that. Uh, Russell Wilson's ability as a pocket passer. And, yes. and I, I don't. I mean, I, I thought it was. I thought the most interesting part was that there was disagreement among people within this organ- Seahawks organization. I mean, there's it. a lot of people in an organization. I mean, if every single person in the organization was just like, yep, oh, then Russell every... Wilson would have fucking sucked every like, single person in the lakers draft room wanted them to draft max, max christie in the second round at number 35 overall it's an amazing thing that happened according to rob palenka i don't think i know enough about max christie to get this joke it's not even a max christie joke it's just a rob palenka joke he's uh <laughs> but if if that were to be the case if russell wilson i I but of course he's fucking in decline. He's in his 30s. I mean, that's just, it It doesn't matter. 
People spend so much time worrying about, and I think this is a global thing. People spend too much time concerned about the direction that something is going and not enough time concerned about where it's starting. I totally agree. So something I that's mean, in decline. Russell Wilson could decline for Rogers 20 years and still be better than Drew Locke. Right? Aaron I mean, Rogers. I don't know. Aaron Rodgers won MVP last year. I think it's a little harder to make the case that he's in decline. But th- that's the other piece is Aaron Rodgers was in decline and then he got better. Like, the, I, I don't. And it, and who who was he playing for when he got better? These things also aren't linear in that way. Who was he playing for when he got better? From Matt Lafleur. That's what you're saying? No. Nathaniel Hackett was oh, his offensive for... quitter, who is now the head coach of the Denver Broncos. So, an interesting piece to this entire puzzle. <sighs> I I would be hesitant to give offensive coordinators too much credit. But I, yes, and Matt LaFleur comes from an offensive background, et cetera, et cetera. It's just an interesting coincidence. But these things aren't necessarily linear also in the way that progression isn't linear, that players sometimes put it together later. Like this isn't a fucking video game, right? But if that were to be the case, what I'm saying is that e- even if Russell Wilson has a down year, I don't think that guarantees that he's going to have the next year be a down year or whatever. If it is clear that Russell Wilson is again the 12th you know 15th best quarterback in the league it probably makes sense for the Seahawks to have moved on especially with him moving into a Nathaniel Hackett offense right like if that's the case if he moves to an offense he has a bigger load if everything that the haters said was true right couldn't pass from the pocket his mobility is going down with a bigger workload he's not as good if those things are true then it totally makes sense for the Seahawks to have traded him I mean to me it's all about how much his value would potentially decline over the next year. Because I think I think we all agree that like it wouldn't be the most ridiculous thing in the world for the Seahawks to have explored trading Russell Wilson next year when he was when they would have had to decide an extension for him and his age and the roster would have been even more of an issue. It was uh, the frustration is all about everything was lined up for them to have a chance this year with a fourth place schedule to make a run. And they didn't take advantage of it. Instead are going to utilize that fourth place schedule to go seven and 10 and not have a good enough draft pick to reflect the talent level of the roster. I, I, I still don't know if that would have changed anything though. Like again, I I'm at the place of, I think it was the wrong decision to trade Russell Wilson, but understanding where the roster was going. They just fucked things up too badly while Russell Wilson was here to have made sense to keep Russell Wilson, I guess is what I'm saying. Like, you I mean, kind of you kind of can't undo it, or it would have taken... It would take a regime change, and it would take three to four years to really build it back up, which the Packers withstood, and the Saints withstood. Other teams did. And maybe we'll look at it, and Russell Wilson is not as good of a quarterback as... You know, it's still very high high bar to be as good as Aaron Rodgers and Drew Brees. Yeah, I don't think he is. No, I I, I don't think he's quite at their level. That's fine. But you can still it, be extremely valuable and not be at their level. I mean, I think the other piece of this is like, how good is the Seahawks defense this year? Their football outsiders DVOA defensive projection is shockingly average. Shockingly average. Eighteen. Oh, we've got. But but you understand what I'm I, saying. But like, like you could win with the 18th best defense. Now, if this year they have the 31st best defense. With these defensive changes they made, and with Jamal Adams healthy, etc., 
Like then it's like okay, actually they, they already injured. He, he's got the broken finger, but uh, if if it's that the case, that's the case. It's like well, even with Russell Wilson, this team wouldn't have been good enough to do anything in the playoffs. So fine, trade him now. It didn't matter. That's the other scenario here. I think that potentially changes my prior on when yeah. to trade Russell Wilson. Uh, but you see what I'm saying? They've fucked things up for the last four or five years, you know, aside from a, a small handful of decisions. And because of that, the roster wasn't in a place to have benefit. And this is my same argument for why I think they should have traded DK Metcalf. Or it's just like, why do you need a DK Metcalf to win six games? Right? Oh, seven games. Hitting that over. Seven games. Hitting that over. It's not yeah. a personal thing. I fucking love DK Metcalf, but it's just, it's not going to be as much fun watching DK Metcalf catch passes from Geno Smith while the defense can't defend, right? Or, or more realistically, while we've run the ball 40 times in a game. It, it's just, if the roster isn't there to support that player and the philosophy isn't there to support that player, like, you might as well get value because, again, these are not players. The player, Abe Lucas, Charles Cross, are not players that Pete Carroll is going to benefit from. You know, having those players in the organization is going to be about the next coach. And that's why it's exciting that we drafted them. You know, if Tariq Woolen hits, far. if Tariq, nobody is a coach forever. <laughs> nobody else has the slogan win forever. I'm just being honest. Nobody is a coach forever, and nobody can withstand mediocrity forever, and nobody can withstand losing forever. And unless Pete Carroll finds the quarterback this offseason, then Abe Lucas and Charles Cross will be playing for somebody else in year two or three or whatever. But I, I think that's why it's really exciting to have these players because the reality is by the time that Pete Carroll was gone, the philosophy was different, the investment was different, Somebody else was going to be the coach and the roster would have been so devoid of talent. Russ would have been 37 years old. Like, they just... Pete Carroll's timeline and Russell Wilson's timeline did not align with each other. Which is, you know, mentioned in Brady's piece and still the most surprising thing here that a 70-year-old coach would sign off on a move that is clearly a step backwards in the short term, which it's unclear I whether that's just the delusion. Pete Carroll knows it's a, a step back in the short term. Yeah, Brady had another piece talking about their optimism of the, for the season that uh, suggested otherwise. Uh, the Seahawks updated DVOA projections, the final DVOA projections from Football Outsiders. 30th on offense, 18th on defense, 3rd in special teams, 26th overall, go. and an average of 7.3 wins. Uh, Aaron Schatz noted in the analysis there, Seattle improves because of Geno Smith replacing Drew Locke as the starting quarterback, so apparently he wasn't listening to the Seahawks Man to Man podcast. Some of that is the fact that Smith has a higher, quote, team-free quarterback projection. And part of it is that teams with poor projected quarterbacks do even worse if those quarterbacks are new to the team, which Locke is and Smith is not. Cool. Love it. Uh, that was another question that I get Zach had while well, I answered a third one, um, which wasn't explicitly a question, but his perspective was, I, I think... You and I are both of the place of hope the Seahawks are good. And I don't even hope the Seahawks are good. I if don't the know Seahawks if I... were twelve and five, you'd be upset about that. No fucking. They would be upset about it. again, as I said earlier. It's on the season preview pod, which we should have mentioned by this point. Uh, it's 
it's how they get there is the record is irrelevant to me it's how they get there i will be fine with a 12 and 5 record i would be fine hosting a playoff game no matter how they get there act of god whatever <laughs> like very <laughs> <laughs> actually erupt. yeah so if somehow that's beneficial for the seahawks i will be fine with that and i'm confident you will be also the seahawks the mariners need earthquakes the seahawks need eruptions the the reality is if geno smith is good we will all of a sudden rally around geno smith and be like geno smith is good for sure so i i don't agree with your you would be upset about that first goal was the seahawks are good if the seahawks are not going to be good i'm just not saying i'm I'm not going to be blanket excited I, we will never be able to prove this because they're not going to be good, but I think you would be blanket excited. Everything is contextual. I mean, they could have this... You talked about, what, the Titans season last year where they were legitimately bad but went 12-5 and five they were because the luck? Seed. They were the one seed in the AFC. I mean, they... Well, how did that work out for them in the playoffs? Uh, I think they were a couple plays away. I don't know. How did that work out for them in the playoffs? I mean, it seemed like the Titans recognized they didn't have the roster and kind of blew it up a little bit. Fair. Um, but so if the number one goal is to be good, I think you and I are both of the perspective that they should just basically bottom out, right? Play a bunch of young players, see how they look. And Zach was arguing that being average, not being terrible was better than being really bad. And I I was sort of looking at, I think they, they need a draft pick that is good enough. They need to be able to draft one of the four or five quarterbacks who are going to go in the top 10 to 15 picks. Beyond that, I don't think they necessarily need the first pick in the draft. Uh, there's not necessarily even that long of a history of success. Of, there's a couple of first picks in the draft who've been really, really good. Uh, but it's definitely not like a slam dunk guaranteed star or anything like that. Uh, and I just think there are so many different ways to build. The NFL is so based off changes from year to year and randomness and luck that there's really no one way to build an NFL team. So I can kind of see it from the perspective of being average and then hope you find the quarterback. And I can kind of see it from the perspective of bottoming out. And it really is just, there's, there's too many different ways uh, to assemble a roster in the NFL to really say that there's one right way or one wrong way. Yeah. I mean, I still don't think just because there's a lot of different ways doesn't mean they're all equally likely to work. So, I mean, I'd want to do more research into it, but I do fundamentally just think having the quarterback is what matters and almost nothing else matters in football, ultimately. I, I mean, I, quarterback I and luck. That's all but you need. But if it's, if having, and maybe scheme, uh, but if having the quarterback, I, I don't think you need the first pick in the draft to have the quarterback. I, uh, that is certainly fair. Should we talk about this game? So according to sportsoddshistory.com, it is the most erode team, the six and a half point line here in favor of the Broncos. The most erode team has been favored by at Lumen Field since the Rams visit in 2018, which the uh, was a 33-31 Seahawks loss where LA converted a fourth down to run out the clock, uh, you may recall. That was the only start of oh, Russell Wilson. I was, I was in uh, Minneapolis for a wedding. I was in they Portland a, for the Sounders Timbers. 
they got a sneak on fourth down, right? Yeah, they like originally initially didn't go for it. They were he was gonna do the Sean McVay thing and punt, but then they called a time they called him timeout got called and they came out and went for it and got it. That is the only start of Russell Wilson's career where the Seahawks ever got more than four points at home. And so in literally the first game after they traded Russell Wilson, it's happening. Uh Denver's DVOA projections from that aforementioned piece, ninth on offense. 29th on defense, 25th on special teams, 15th overall, 8.6 average wins. Shots noted the loss of Tim Patrick at wide receiver factored into the Broncos projection declining. They finished last season 12th in offense, 20th defense, 30th special teams. Yeah, Why is the defense projected to go so down? Yeah, I'm not totally sure about that one. I mean, they were not as good, I don't think, after the Von Miller trade. Um, That's one thing I pointed out, highlighted in my research is a really interesting variables is their pass rush last year. Bradley Chubb did not have a sack in the seven games he played while dealing all year with an ankle injury had seven and a half sacks in 2020 12 was a rookie in 2018. Uh, wasn't quite as effective, had some injuries in 2019 as well. The Broncos then signed opposite him. Randy Gregory was coming off six sacks in 12 games in Dallas. He's currently ramping up from a sol- shoulder injury that kept him on the pup list for much of training camp. So this is the de- debut, not only, of course, for Russell Wilson in Denver, but also Nathaniel Hackett as head coach. Justin Newton is def- offensive coordinator. He was previously the tight end coach working with Hackett in Green Bay. So, you know, surely it's going to be Hackett's offense. And Giro Avero, Evero is defensive coordinator coming off five years with the Rams, most recently as secondary coach and passing game coordinator. So Denver, presumably, like every other team in the league, going to incorporate more too high coverages this year as they tweak the Vic Fangio defense that's been in place the last couple of years that has some schematic overlap with the, what the Rams are doing because of the fact that there was the, the the common time there for Brandon Staley before he came to LA. But uh, uh, a lot of changes in Denver, which will make this a very interesting game for Broncos fans, just like Seahawks fans. <laughs> That was the longest awkward pause ever. <laughs> I have nothing else to say. It's week one. We're going to find out. Whoa, we, we're going to do chances of victory here. Uh, I, I'm shocked by your perspective that you think the CX could win this game. Oh, no, I can. Will. Will. Will win, win this game. game. Yeah. I can't wait to do that post-game pod. If I, I were still going to be in Vegas on Monday, I would for sure bet on the CX. Really? Yeah, again, it's not not that I think like the Seahawks are being slept on by the haters. I just think I, I it's just a gut feeling that Brock Heward's going to go on on Tuesday morning and be like, Pete Carroll knew it all along. Russell Wilson was a fucking fraud. He can't do anything without the run game and defense that Pete Carroll and the structure that Pete Carroll provided to force him to play in a system he was just trying to win MVP out there. He wasn't trying to win football games, which is stupid because winning football games leads you to winning MVP. That's a the most baffling, bonkers, galaxy brain argument that was made anonymously in, in yeah. Ray's piece today. It's 
it's also ironic given the whole like, well, they only passed the ball on on from the one yard line because they wanted Russell Wilson to win MVP, not Marshawn Lynch, which they don't give MVPs for touchdowns from the one yard line either, morons. I'm worked up now. Uh, anyways, I think all of that is going to happen because that is the worst case scenario. And somehow the curse is operating deep in the in the receptacles. It is, and then I don't think it will matter because then the Seahawks will go like seven and ten. But for one week, I think there's going to be the most massive Russell Wilson truther victory lap that this world has ever seen. The idea chances of victory ninety five percent. Wow, ninety five percent. All Russell Wilson cares about is school and his mom and his friends. Like, the idea that this is bad, that Russell Wilson wants to win the MVP in Seattle, uh, it's a fascinating one. I'm How many be different on... voices did I break out during that? I feel like the opposite a lot of different... end of the spectrum here on that one. From your 95% equal to the percentage chances of the University of Washington at <laughs> home a... beating Portland State. That's a 97 on that one. I was 95, equal to my percent chances of victory. Uh, I do not think that... Uh, any of those things are going to happen. The, I guess the only thing that I would feel normally okay about is like a Monday night week one home underdog, like taking the teams out of it. If I were to see this game as two neutral teams without the emotional piece, without the like the all the shit that we have going into it, I would say like, I feel like there's a pretty good chance of the home underdog winning that one. You know, just with the, the situation, it being week one, surprise them or whatever. All that said, Russell Wilson is wanting to embarrass Pete Carroll more than anything. And Russell Wilson's ability, you know, the offense can control what the defense does more than anything else. Russell Wilson and Nathaniel Hackett, like how many fucking times have the Packers shredded the Seahawks defense? Do you think in the ways that Russell Wilson or that Pete Carroll may know how to stop Russell Wilson or whatever from their experience, think of how many fucking times the Packers knew exactly what to do against the Seahawks defense. So unless it is dramatically different or way better, like it's just not going to happen. They're just a better team across the board. Geno Smith is not winning this fucking game. Uh, and I think Russell Wilson, more than anything, wants to beat Pete Carroll, wants to embarrass him. I don't think it's anything personal against the city of Seattle. I think it's just personal against probably Pete Carroll and John Schneider and maybe a couple of others within the organization uh, and some of the cheerleaders of management. But there's this is going to be – it's not even going to be close. It'll be boring by the fourth quarter. Uh, it's a 25% chance of victory. I just – like, I have never been more excited – for a post-game podcast than Monday night, one way or another. I, I don't think it's going to be that fun of a game. That's why you're very excited about it, but I'm kind of oh, like... if Russell Wilson destroys the Seahawks, that's going to be kind of fun. It might not even be destroys the Seahawks. They might win just comfortably, like arm's length. They might win by 10. I mean, yes, a, like a the Broncos win by six, and it was like the Seahawks it was a classic Geno Smith started last season game where the Seahawks were in it the whole time but not actually because they couldn't score any points and then there was a turnover on the final drive yeah I, I agree that wouldn't be the most fun outcome but come on I expect to be filing out of that stadium 
in the same way that I did most of the games last year at home, <laughs> uh, aside from the week 17 game against Detroit, which was very fun. Uh, finally out of that stadium, just feeling extraordinarily depressed, but at least I don't think it's supposed to be rainy. So that's something. <laughs> I guess that is all the more reason to think that Russell Wilson will perform well in that I'm one. I'm just, you are so tripping if you think that Russell Wilson is not going to just come in. And... I'm just like, it's been a gut feeling I've had ever since this game was announced. That just, it will look nothing like the rest of the season. And people will, again, read way too much into it. National jump to conclusions week, as Aaron Schatz likes to call week one. Like John Elway reposting the Trevor Simeon criticisms. <laughs> yes, yes, no, very much like that. I, I think we will look at this and say to ourselves, like, the idea that we couldn't find a coach who was willing to just, in, that organizationally we had a quarterback like Russell Wilson and we weren't willing to invest everything into making him happy in the way that so many other teams have done. I think we're going to look back on this and really think to ourselves, what the fuck were we doing? And also even getting more out of the trade. That was the thing that kind of like left me really sour was the Denver Broncos could be heading, who knows, they could have found somebody else, right? Maybe they would have traded for Jimmy Garoppolo or whatever, but we couldn't have gotten Patrick Sertan of that trade. Like think about how excited the Broncos are to have Russell Wilson right now. And the first and the second in the two drafts is great, but like there could and, have been more. And no offense fan and Shelby Harris. Like they did get some, some useful players out of this trade. Great. The, most the players are are afterthoughts. But I don't there could agree be, that they're afterthoughts. There could have been more. There definitely I mean, could have I been more. I suppose there always could have been more. I I don't know. I think at some point you're going to the Knicks are going to back away from the trade and you're going to end up having to trade with Cleveland instead. That's fine. They got a lot more from Cleveland than they would have gotten from the Knicks. Someone more. Perhaps. Worst case scenario, they get one of the better trades in NBA history. <laughs> Was Three for some draft picks and two and two pick swaps. It wasn't even the best trade that. they made this summer. What? It wasn't even the best trade they made this summer. Actually, <laughs> I think it was I think it was third among the trades they made this summer. I'd go Royce O'Neal second. <laughs> okay. Get a first round pick for Royce right. O'Neal. But, but again, in this scenario where you hold out for too much, you have Russell Wilson. Oh, yes, I agree with that part of it. You should be holding out for too much. I'm just to saying, have you could Wilson. always that, say a team could have I... gotten more. Like, shouldn't the Jets have held out for like another third round pick in the Jamal Adams trade? I Jamal, it's different. Having a quarterback changes your entire organization. Having Jamal Adams ruins your organization. It changes well, your Seahawks, entire organization. Seahawks still gave up the two first round picks for it. So, uh, I I and... don't. The thing that I don't agree with, though, I I think the time had come for the Seahawks to trade Russell Wilson. And I think that's why it happened now. They weren't looking at it. They weren't looking at it pragmatically because they couldn't look at it pragmatically. They couldn't be like, hey, we're going to well, do this for one you, more year together. You can't look at it pragmatically. You need to be fired. That's I the, agree. the number one responsibility of the job. If you're doing it personally instead of but, pragmatically, but then you are think, by definition unqualified for the job. I think Russell Wilson was clearly ready to move on. He And if Pete and John weren't going to get fired, then it was time for Russell Wilson to move on now. And I think everybody recognized that. And that's why it happened now. I think the Seahawks, if they could have had their way, would have liked to have had Russell Wilson back for one more year. But the relationship was just too sour. They fucked it up too bad. 
They spent four years fucking up their relationship with Russell Wilson and taking him for granted. And it came to the point where he was just done and they had to do it now. I've said this time and again, the beauty of it is this trade won't be determined by anonymous quotes. This trade won't be determined by our thoughts. The teams have to go out and play the games. And the Seahawks are going to play those games. One single game (laughs) to determine who won the the trade. The Seahawks are going to play those games with Geno Smith and Drew Locke as their quarterbacks. So, on that note. Thanks for listening. Thanks. It's very odd for you to be the coolly rational one and me to have the emotional take. It's so, you're so dumb. I just don't even, I I don't know. I mean, I can no. feel it. It, it just. You got to trust your gut. Your positivity about the Seahawks is being pessimistic. It's, I get that. Yes.